Our four Sundays at 1050, we devote to our theme for the year. And this year, our theme comes from the hymn, O Thou Found of Every Blessing. The hymn reminds us and calls for us as the people of God to both recognize and respond to the blessings of God every day that he showers upon us. Well, what I want us to do today is to finish the first verse of that hymn. Teach me ever to adore thee. May I still thy goodness prove while the hope of endless glory fills our heart with joy and love. We want to focus in on that one phrase, may I still thy goodness prove. It's a rich thought. I think there could be a lot of sermons that go about this. In fact, Ricky was smiling as he said, good luck with that sermon this week. He knew that we have some deep digging we need to do. And that's where 2 Corinthians is going to take us to consider proving the goodness of God. I read a couple years ago about a survey that went out in a college campus, and the survey was based around this question. If you could ask God any question, what would it be? The number one response is, why is there suffering and pain in this world? And the most common questions a lot of people wrestle with is, how could you say God is a good God in light of all the bad that exists? And certainly, while the Bible gives us evidence and answers to that question, our hymn suggests something a little different. Our hymn suggests that we as God's people are to prove or to be a witness to the goodness of God. There's a phrase used in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5 about those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. In other words, if, if there's anyone, brethren, that ought to be able to defend and prove and demonstrate God's goodness, would it not be you and I who have tasted the goodness of our God? We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be beginning in this text in verse 7, where here the Apostle Paul writes, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the, surpass, the surprise, surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You reflect back to verse 7, and you'll look at that through the perspective of the world. You would imagine from the world's perspective, gazing at the people of God, it's not a very impressive life. doesn't seem all that good because the people of God are not shielded from pain or sickness or harm. In fact, they're just as frail and weak and helpless as the rest of us are. What good is it to be a good people following a good God if that is the life that exists? 
Verse 7 kind of reminds me, do you remember the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? The whole movie Indiana is searching for the Holy Grail, and at the end of the movie, he comes across this room where the Grail exists, but in this room are all sorts of cuts. Most of them are covered in gold and jewels and very beautiful, but there's one that's very common and ordinary. It's clay. It happens to be the very cup that he's looking for. From the outside, it doesn't look like much. Isn't that really the point? But from the world's perspective, this life doesn't really look all that different from everyone else's because we get sick and we get hurt and we have bad days and we suffer as well. But maybe that's the greater point is that there's more than what meets the eye. Is that really there is something quite valuable. In fact, we might say there's something extraordinarily good about this humble, common life as a clay vessel that God has called us to. That's what I want you to think about through this context and explore for just a couple minutes together. How can we, verse 7, get that language, how can we as common clay vessels display or prove the goodness of God? And I would say our first thing right off the page is, is that we do, throw, do so through enduring life's storms. Do you see the working of God in verses 7 through 10? It is not God who causes the pain and the suffering and the hardships that Paul is facing here. The being crushed, the being afflicted, the being perplexed. That, that's not of God. You might remember when God created this world in the very beginning, the commentary he gives about his creation is that it was very good. Everything God makes is very good. And in fact, this good world only became bad or tainted or corrupted when Satan tempted and Adam and Eve gave in to sin and our good and just God responded with punishment. God is not the source of evil. John makes it clear that the evil one is a reason for the pain and the suffering and the evil that exists in this world. First John 3 and verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There is an evil one that is influencing the pain, the suffering, the crime, the departure far from God and his original plan. God, he is found in verses 7 through 9 and is found in the two words, but not. We have this treasure, he says, in these earthen vessels and we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Nope, God does not bring the evil and suffering that exists in this world. He is not the source of all the harm that we face, and yet he does not abandon us to face those hard times and those storms alone. Yes, Paul was perplexed. Yes, Paul suffered, but God was with him, and not only was God with him and stood with him in those storms, the but not means he saw him through, that the storms were not Paul's end. They did not put an end to his story or to his life. God delivered him through his hardships. That's what the world doesn't see. They see bad. They see pain. They don't see the presence of God who stands with us in every trial. Or they see hardships and they see all the bad it brings into our life and they don't see any good that can come from the bad. Our God can take hardships and questions and doubts, how he can bring storms and he can use them for a greater good. We know, Paul says, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What do you think? That God can take the things that you and I oftentimes only see the bad, the diagnosis, the, the, the being fired and let go, the being poor and broken and hurting and suffering, and God can take those things which are intended to bring pain and use it to bring about something you and I could never even imagine. That we would be the most selfless, humble, loving versions of ourselves because we are imitating the most humble, loving, perfect Son of God. When we endure life storms, and we need to be careful about this, when we make it through the storm, when we remain faithful and true in the midst of life's trials, it is not to say, look how strong that brother is. Look how resilient we are as a people who have made it through these storms. Look again at verse 7 and realize the mistake. Making it through the storm is not saying, look how strong we are. What it is is saying, look at the power of God. Look how great and how strong and how powerful their God he is. Because we are made by God to depend on God, to be delivered by God, all to the honor and glory of God. One author said, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. It's not to our glory. Oh, you did it. You remain faithful to God in the midst of that storm. All the glory, all the praise belongs to the God, the real strength and the power through whom we have drawn it. And so one of the ways we show the world, pr prove to the world that God is good, is when we endure life storms. Faithful to God through life storms. Dedicated to God through life storms. Showing that God is worth remaining true and faithful to in the midst of life storms. We also show the goodness of God as these clay vessels through following what is true. Notice there's an emphasis right in the heart of this section on what we know. Verse 13, he says, I believe, therefore I spoke. And verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Chapter 5 begins by saying, For we know in verse 1 that at this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know, we know, we know. In fact, they knew it so much. If you kind of get verse 11, they knew it. They were so convinced, Paul and these apostles, that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of this is true, that they were willing to live it out in their life despite what it brought. He says, we are being put to death for your sakes, which is death to us and yet life for you. We know. Verse 13 is a quotation from Psalm 116. Worth remembering, because what he shows is genuine faith and the genuine response to genuine faith. I believe, therefore I spoke. I believe, therefore I live that belief. I show that belief. I demonstrate that belief. Remember what James said in James 2, verse 18? Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I believe and thus I show you my belief through how I live. Stay here for a minute. One of the ways, brethren, you and I, as clay vessels, show the world that God is good it's by our belief in God. And it's not just that we believe in God or that there is a God. We show the world we believe God, that he is good. And we show it by this. I believe in everything that God says and that his way is always right. 
His way is always good. His way is always perfect. When I submit to God, I am showing the world I believe his way is good and right. For instance, what God says about marriage. If I follow what God says about marriage, and not just know what it says, but I submit to God's word in marriage, I am showing and proving the world that God's way on marriage works and that it's good. Not just one man and one woman for life, as is grounded in that garden example, but even what Paul would say in Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, let each individual among also love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband as selfless love, a devoted love, a committed love, where one is bound to the other, and a harmonious love, submission, and respect. Very different from the world, but I'm showing God's way is good. Or in the home, moms and dads. The next chapter, Ephesians 6 and verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, my children are not my friends. They're not my roommates. They're not my bosses, despite what some may believe today, that there is discipline, that there is instruction, that there is teaching, that there is a molding of these children in terms of what they believe and how they behave and who they are to try and create them as the young men and young women God made them to be. When I listen to what God says about the home and parenting, I am showing that I believe God's way is best and it's good. And, and we could do that with anything, can't we? About how I use my finances from Ephesians chapter 6, or my time in Ephesians chapter 4, or my language, or my habits, or my friends, or my associations. Maybe the best way to summarize all of this is what Paul says in Romans 12, when he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now notice, when we choose to not be conformed to this world, to think the way the world thinks, to approve the way the world approves, or what the world approves, to behave the way the world behaves, but instead we choose to transform ourselves to the image of God by the renewing of our mind, lifting our minds and our eyes focused heavenward, Godward, God's will and God's focus, we prove that God's will is good. And it's not just good, it's acceptable. It's desirable for anyone who wants a good life, and thus it is truly perfect, complete. Do you see it? Do you see the relationship? Because from the outside, the world looks at the laws of God and says, that seems really restricting, confining the law of God. It seems like it's holding me back from the things that I truly want and desire today. I look at that law and I look at what it says about life and habits and marriage and relationships, and that seems like it's keeping me back from what really, truly is good. If you remember the old movie Pinocchio, the Disney movie Pinocchio, the, the old one, not the, not the new one. This wooden puppet is created and given life, and there is a conscience by the cricket, Jiminy Cricket, whose main goal is to keep Pinocchio on the right path, to lead him on the choices that are good and honorable. And so long as he listens to the cricket, he's making the right choices, but then enters these people like a fox named Honest John. Surely you can trust a guy whose name is Honest. And so he tells him to not listen to his conscience, but to shirk his responsibilities and to abandon his path of going to school. And then 
there's this coachman full of a, of a cart full of these boys, and the overwhelming peer pressure of all those his age weighs on Pope Pinocchio to where he abandons his conscience because they're going to a place, who could refuse it? Pleasure Island. Pleasure Island, where there literally are no rules. Anything you would ever want to do, you can do. And in fact, the things that would seem illegal back on land, nothing is illegal here. And so vandalism, drinking and smoking, being rude and careless, all are done. And it seems like this is the most amazing and incredible place in life that they were intended to lead. But then one by one, those boys turn into beasts, donkeys. Even Pinocchio begins a transformation from the closest thing of a boy to now like a beast. Keep your marker in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, please. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. The Lord then knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise those who despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. He's describing those here who are God, who God has reserved for a day of judgment, those who are corrupt, despising authority, those who find themselves opposed to the way and the will of God. Look at verse 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instincts to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will and the destruction of those creatures also being destroyed, suffering wrongs as the wages of wrongdoing. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. On and on and on he goes. Question, what happens when we take God out of the equation? What happens to marriages? Get a good glimpse. What happens to marriages today when there is no God? How selfish and empty. How vain and abusive. It's no question that divorces are still skyrocketing today for the reason there is no God. What happens to the home when there is no God? Well, they're focused on the wrong things. Sports and on GPA, on pleasures. The rising statistic in our country, in our country, is fatherless homes. Well, what happens to one another? How do we treat our fellow man when there is no God? Well, just ask yourself. Take a good glimpse. Get on Facebook. Look at your neighbors. When there's conflict and we don't agree and we're not eye to eye, how do we treat one another? Well, there's a reason there's a rise of mass shootings. There's a reason there's people thrown in prison with rage and anger and abuse and shouting and division and lines drawn. What happens when there is no God is we become just like a beast. 
So when we submit to the will of God, when we find ourselves obedient to these words, what we are showing the world is what you believe to be restrictive, what you believe to be confining, is actually the path to the best life possible. That this is good. In fact, this is the only path to real liberation and real freedom. Are those who believe and surrender to the will and the law of God. Do you notice though, back in our context of 2 Corinthians 4, the real power of the belief we have in Jesus. It's not just that we believe that God's will is good and then that his way is good and always right and perfect. From verses 13 and 14 and 15, can you see it? I believe it. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he was resurrected on that third day. And I believe, as it says, that he is coming again and he is bringing life and life eternal when he comes. If there's, if there's any evidence to the goodness of God, then let it start with me. Then let it begin with me. Because I was not good. I was just like a beast reasoning my own way. But I met Jesus. And by his grace and his mercy, he forgave me. He redeemed me. I am not who I was because of who he is. As Joy Moyer summarized earlier this, uh, this week, harmonizing many of the different passages, because he lives, we live. Because we sinned, we died. Because we died, he died. Because he died, we die. Because he lives, we live. I know it to be true. How do we prove God is good? Look at the evidence of my life, of someone who was so broken, yet redeemed, yet forgiven, yet given a new chance and a new will and a new purpose in life. And really this points us to that grand conclusion about trusting what is to come. The real way of summarizing verses 16 to 18 is the pains and the sufferings of earth forgotten by the glories of heaven. There is nothing so significant, Paul is saying, that you and I could ever face or experience with heaven in mind. Think of it. Think of it today the list that's weighing on your heart, what issue right now is so important that will still exist when we are there? What priority is so demanding? What job or project is so consuming that will still be on your mind when we are there? What pride is so consuming that I would not change or humble or get rid of in my life that is so important to keep me from there? Rather than what pain... What hardship, what grief, what loss is so consuming today? That will not possibly exist when we stand over there. We prove the goodness of God by showing the world something strange. Something strange, and yet it's so sought after. You and I know this to be true. What the world longs for is what you and I know. Hope. Confidence in darkness. Confidence in a day that is yet to come. We know, brethren, what they long to know. 
that death is not the end of the story and there is more yet to come. I've loved studying when she's not here today, our sister Olaide. It's precious seeing faith begin and to start for the first time. She, like several here, are reading the Bible for the first time and learning the Bible for the first time. Oftentimes when we study together, she'll tell me about her week and what she's done and things she's seen. And so she was watching the show, The Chosen, which walks through the gospel story. And she was relating one episode where the Pharisee, the, the synagogue official, excuse me, Jairus, his daughter is sick. And he comes to Jesus and he gets Jesus and they're on their way to go and heal the daughter. But then Jesus is delayed. And he gets right up to going to the house, but then the daughter dies and the episode ends. And Elide says, it's just so sad. And no one knows how this story is going to end. I said, would you like to know the end of the story? You know, there's a lot of people around us who only have so much of the story figured out. But you and I know the end. We know how this story ends. We know that there's something yet to come that changes everything currently that is. We show that God is good because God's not going to let death have the final word. Brethren, how do we walk this off the page? How do, how do we take this truth and this text and live it out this next week? It could be that there may not be a greater evidence or proof to the goodness of God than we, his people. We are his people who, in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his people who are desiring from Galatians 5 to bear that good fruit of the Spirit. We are his people called in Galatians 6 and verse 10 to do good every opportunity that's presented before us. There may not be, listen to this again, for every neighbor and co-worker and co-student and people in our lives who are wondering how God could be good, we may be the clearest answer to them. But realize, verse 7, we are just clay pots. There is nothing impressive about you and I. The real power is not in you and I. Go back to verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. There is something great and it is not you and I. Praise God, it is Jesus. May I still thy goodness prove. I want you to ask and think about this for this week. You and I are given the amazing opportunity and responsibility to prove that God is good. So I want you to think and ask, in the times of suffering, do I show the goodness of God by trusting in God, by staying faithful to him, by drawing closer to him, by growing in this difficult time to be more like him? The doctor's office, at the hospital, speaking with my boss, and the difficult times at school, and there's times of suffering. Do they see Jesus in me and his goodness? Thinking about daily life 
in my daily life? Do I show the goodness of God by trusting in his words? Trusting it so that they see it in my life because I'm following his laws. I prove I trust in Jesus when I do what Jesus says. I prove that God's way is always right and always good when I do what is right and what is good by what his law says. Do they see that? Do they see someone who believes in the love of God even when we come so broken? Do we see one who is relying every day, not on my strength, I'm just a cup, I'm just a clay vessel, I'm relying on the amazing, unparalleled grace of Christ. And then what is to come? And what is to come? Whatever is to come. Do I show those around me the goodness of God by remaining hopeful? Or thankful? Or optimistic and confident about what is to come? You worried about tomorrow? Are you worried about this summer? Are you worried about news yet to be reported? Are you worried about this country and the economy? Is there a confidence that can't be shaken by any change or storms that exist under the sun? Do they see that in you? Do they see that in me? The psalmist said it best, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Brethren, if there is anyone who ought to be able to declare with confidence that God is good, it's us. It's his people. So we ask you today, if you have not tasted the goodness of God, would you do so? Would you turn from the world? Would you leave sin behind realizing that all of its promises are nothing but empty oases? All they are doing is destroying and destructing who it is that you are and were made to be. Would you leave that behind? Would you turn from your sin? Would you repent from it? Would you confess Jesus as the Son of God, as the Word of God declares, as His miracles have proven? Would you declare with your lips He is the Son of God, and today make Him your Lord and your Master? Even obeying Him to the point of putting Him on in baptism, would you do that today? And taste for yourself how good life is with your good God. And for us who have tasted the amazing goodness of God, will we show that this week? And every word and every post and every place will we show by the way we live, will we prove our God is a good God. Can we help you today? If there's anything we can do, any prayers we can offer, any help we can give, let's do it right now. Let's do it as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.